Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Cameron, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. Hi, Owen. Great to be here. Yeah, it's always good to chat. We spoke recently on the live mini-series that we did as part of Southwealth. Uh, it was heaps of fun. And um, we've spoken before about many different things as you know, yeah. your role kind of bridges ETFs, investment management, but also some of the major themes and trends we see in the market. And I want to spend a bit of time talking to you about fixed income. Uh, there are many reasons for that. Uh, it's probably been the number one topic for our community this year, particularly people later in life and who are seeking passive income. Um, we did a survey recently, mate, and if you took passive income and you put it with retirement, that's what nine out of 10 people are investing for, um, hmm. is for like either early retirement with passive income or on-time retirement with some passive income. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that yield focus. Speaking of, why do you think Australians have this love affair with income. It seems that way to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but why, if you agree, do you think that we seem to have that? Yeah, it, I mean, it is interesting. And and we're going to talk about fixed income here, which is, you know, what most of the world looks for when they when they think of income. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, we're a bit different in Australia because uh, we've, we've got franking credits in our, in our equity market. Uh, and um, that, that sort of created a little bit of a different picture here in Australia versus elsewhere. And, and you know, clearly a lot of investors uh, focus on frank dividends, um, frank dividends. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's some good reasons reasons for that, that focus. Um, the imputation system, as it's called, which is what, what franking credits are, are generated under, mm -hmm. is um, essentially built to ensure that corporate profits aren't taxed twice. So they're not taxed in the hands of the, pro of the corporate and then in the hands of the shareholder. Um, and that's different to other places like the US where you do have, in fact, have sort of double taxation at those two levels. And it, it sort of meant that our, firstly, our, our, our markets have evolved a bit differently. If you look at US markets, uh, the bond markets, in fact, dwarf the equity markets. Here, it's really the opposite. Our fixed income markets are relatively small in Australia. Hmm. Um, we, have, we have almost non-existent high yield market, for example. That's a very big part of capital markets in the state. So, if you think about the opportunity set for what we have to invest in Australia, um, you know most people think first about investing in, in equities and think about generating income from equities because getting franking credits 
means you know it's quite a tax efficient way of of, of receiving income. Mm. Um, I think it is interesting that 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 the the um, the local you know tax legislation around franking credits has meant that if you look at our at the shares in our equity market, you know yes we don't have as big a fixed income market, but our shares are somewhat more bond like than you know the large US. Uh, mega cap stocks, for example, we have to, we have you know banks and miners that pay out very large levels of distributions. They're somewhat incentivized because Australian investors are looking for that tax effective income, income focus, and so some in some senses our equity markets they're a little bit more bond like. Um, mm. You know, it's also the case that if you wanted to you know generate a return out of investing in Australian shares, so the ASX two hundred. Um, I looked at this recently from the high point just before the GFC, which was about October. 2007 until mm-hmm. this month, if you didn't get any dividends on the ASX 200, you would be flat. And that's mm-hmm. like about a 15, 16 year period. Um, so, so income matters, dividend matters, uh, dividends matter. And Australian investors, you know, obviously see that a, as a big part of the return picture. We're conditioned that way. Um, mm-hmm. And so a good reason for the focus. I know when we had uh, Tom on the show recently, he talked about um, the R&D budgets that those mega caps have in the US versus, he was at the time talking about like versus the industrialized S&P 500 type companies. Mm. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it? When you think about the bond proxies, like people have said for a long time, Telstra is a bond proxy. It's basically yes. just consistent income, et cetera, but doesn't grow, you know? Mm. Um, and you think about the implications that maybe not just franking credits, like we're not here to beat up or otherwise on franking credits necessarily. But if you think about that, the incentive to not innovate is um, very, very attractive. And so for uh, any investors that are looking at building a core portfolio or satellite allocation, you've got to consider that context. And I think particularly for folks that are, um, you know, using ETFs as those building blocks is making sure you're diversified just in case one of those things change. Maybe the tax regime changes, for example, and all of a sudden something else has to happen. One of the things that you said at the, the top there was that people typically globally, when they think about income, they think of fixed income or they think of bonds. You know, they think of government debt. They think of debt going to private companies, corporates, state governments, etc. But a lot of people in our community, Cam, they're looking at bond returns for last year, so 2022, and they're thinking to themselves, like I was just having this conversation with a, a retiree the other day who had a huge cash account and huge term deposit allocation and he was saying like I feel I shouldn't be in cash because inflation's beating my cash but then I look at bonds in 2022 it was pretty horrible absolutely yeah, yeah so why like and then I'm getting this question like daily can you maybe reconcile that period and then we'll maybe shift gaze to what happened this year in 2023 yeah yeah so uh so the you know the year that was you know twenty twenty two was the worst year on record for fixed rate government bonds. So uh, in the US or in Australia, um, the you know the impact to the capital value of those bonds was was horrendous. Um, and you know the reasons for that are, are well known. But the, if you look at say Australian ten year government bond, the the yield on that at the start of the year was like one point about 1.7% at the start of 2022. Mm. And with expectations of future cash rates, you know, sk- skyrocketing versus what we've seen historically, uh, that meant that those uh, the capital value of bonds had to adjust downwards to 
to really accommodate that. Um, mm. Now, you know, well, that's obviously not a great experience if, you, if you're holding bonds over that period. Um, it wasn't something that most market participants participants forecast that we'd see such a dramatic rise mm. you know, in cash rates in Australia because I guess we've been somewhat conditioned. Um, it, you know, it, it is interesting, though, that once we see a higher yield environment, bonds become somewhat more protected. So the government bond yield here in Australia tipped over 4% for the 10-year government bond yield in about June last year. And what we've seen since then is that, you know, that fixed rate bonds have continued to be a little bit volatile, but because they're earning a strong yield as a starting point, they're much better positioned to withstand that volatility. And generally, we're seeing that most of our fixed rate bond funds from June last year have been positive in terms of their returns. And that's even when government bonds in Australia have gone up and tipped over 5% for periods. Um, so that's quite encouraging now that we're really off the floor in terms of, of, yeah. of rates and yields, that we do have a more solid case for investing in fixed income. And I mean, we can talk about it, but also on a relative basis, um, fixed income you know, looks more attractive versus the yields that we can see in a lot of the equity market. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? Like, like I, we were speaking to financial advisors late last year in 2022, and they were saying, this is where we're going. Um, we're not going all or nothing. Like it's not all floating rates or all fixed rates, but we're moving into fixed rates because, yeah, sure, there might be some pain in early 2023, but we're going to move there and get positioned for that. And uh, one of the things Tom did say was that now you can do that with ETFs, which is, you know, from the last time yield to a 5% on Aussie bonds is – you know, there was none. So all of a sudden ETFs, as we know, are the premier investment vehicle for building portfolios. And now there's a whole suite of funds for people to invest in that and the the yields are there. Um, can you maybe just talk us through that actually, that kind of like transition we've had this year for the ETF market, like how that has changed as well, like from a big picture, what we've seen? Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a couple of factors here, but um it is interesting if you look at at you know the ETF ecosystem, the you know the use case of ETFs. Maybe if you go back ten years, was to get my global equities exposure because that was hard to access. So I might buy my own shares. I'd probably buy Telstra, the big banks, yep. a couple of miners, Woolies, and then I'd go offshore and get a, a, an ETF for that you know offshore exposure. Fixed income has been an asset class where ETFs haven't really had a, a foothold until really the last five years. And that was partly because there wasn't a great deal of choice. Uh, but there's also some other factors in there. Um, you know, in a low return asset class, so fixed income, you expect over the journey to have lower returns than, than equities. We should also think about, you know, the Australian consumer, they're not just, you know, buying a bond in a frictionless market. Um, so they, they're basically either going through, for example, a financial advisor and they're holding those investments on an investment or a wrap platform and the, there will be administration fees that are attached to that. So that's already a bit of a hurdle for, you know, me holding fixed income if my return expectations are lower than equities. Hmm. And also we've got, you know, in the ETF landscape, you know, there, are, there is brokerage um, associated with, with, with transacting any on-market security. So again, another hurdle. Um, but, you know, the good thing is we're seeing um, prices become more, competi more competitive in both of those environments. So, for example, platforms are now offering lower cost um, solutions for clients. 
Um, and also, even if we look at the you know at direct trading um, on the ASX, we're seeing the the rise of very low and in fact indeed zero uh, brokerage models for people who want to buy ETFs. So BetaShares Direct, you may know on. Yep. We've launched BetaShares Direct, uh, you know, just recently. Very excited by this initiative, and it allows investors to invest um, across any ETF, not just BetaShares ETFs, um, on the ASX with zero brokerage. Um, and so for a lower return asset class like fixed income, mm. taking away those frictions is, is really important. It's really important to do so, to be able to buy any sort of fixed income or cash solution on the ASX when you know it's going to be very low, low management fees to begin with, um, just much, much better outcomes. So, so these are some of the, you know, the, the factors that are making it easier for people to be invested in fixed income. But a lot of it is also that market shift, as we, you know, we talked about the the high yield environment has meant that people can reevaluate what they're doing in fixed income, how they're using fixed income as an asset class, and really the the opportunity to generate returns in that asset class. Mm. Um, the, and and part of the you know really positive story is there are a lot of investors who aren't necessarily ready to add say fixed rate bonds into their portfolio because fixed rate bonds will be subject to more of that volatility from government bond yields going up and down. However, you know, there are a range of, of ETFs that provide exposure to floating rate or variable rate, um, you know, fixed income securities, which then increase in line with changes in effectively the cash rate um, to provide a more capital stable investment. But you, you're also benefiting from that higher yield environment. Mm -hmm. So the solutions across that fixed income spectrum and the growth in ETFs really allows people to be, you know, quite thoughtful in how they access the asset class. It's incredible to think about the um, like the the frictional costs of previous things and how things have dramatically evolved. Obviously, you know, talking about yeah. BetaShares Direct there as well. Like the the barriers have come instantly down, basically, and um, the ability to just without friction move into a, a diversified portfolio is is something that like ten years ago you said like it was even just hard to invest in U.S. shares or global shares, and now you know, you can, in a matter of minutes, you know, you can be exposed potentially. So um, there was another question that I had here for you, which was something that I've, I deal with a lot. And I'm just curious to hear how you think about this, which is a lot of people, because of the conversation we just had about income and growth and these types of things, a lot of people think, well, hey, I'm a high risk investor. I know a bit about investing, um, you know, and these are people with big, big portfolios, Cam, like, mm. you know, millions of dollars and whatever. They're like, well, hey, you know, I've, I've got this, you know, I think the Morgan Household line was everyone's a high growth investor until the next market crash. But, that's a great line. <laughs> but that's 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 that said, a lot of them think, well, hey, you know, I don't need the bonds because I've still got 20 years till I retire. I want to compound as much as possible. How do you think about that? Like, how do you think about the role bonds might have in more hmm. accumulation mode? Um, do they have a role? How do you think that, that fares? Yeah, that's a, you know, I guess when we think about uh, investing, someone who's a young accumulator, and this is obviously very dependent on the individual's risk tolerance and their circumstances, but typically speaking, young accumulators are more likely to have a higher risk tolerance. And there are some good reasons for that. Firstly, your original capital that you hold is not as large as hopefully it is at the end of your investing journey. So you've got less to lose. And, and you've also got an income, your, your salary is going to make up for hopefully any dips that you see in markets throughout the journey. And so, you know, from a purely, you know, mathematical standpoint, if equities have a higher uh, expected return, 
than bonds, then I, I should um, allocate more of my capital to equities. Mm. There is a lot to investing, you know, which involves you know, psychology and emotions and you know, investor behaviour, you know, in, in some cases is, is a terrible thing. And um, I, I think, you know, the point you made about, you know, everyone thinks they should be 100% equities until you know, they see a, a significant market crash. And it, it's probably if you look at where we've been in markets for the last sort of 23 years, um, we saw, you know, a reasonably you know, material and elongated sell-off in the dot-com crash. So U.S. equities are down about 50%. Uh, in the GFC, Australian U.S. equities are down about 50%. Now, those two sell-offs were really something that occurred over, you know, really a couple of years. The bear markets were, were you know, pretty significant. Since that point, we haven't seen any kind of, you know, long-term, um, you know, drawdown in equities. We obviously had the COVID crash we we had some sell-off in in 2018 which was quite short dated and obviously much more shallow so that the, the point about you know not wanting to allocate to defensive assets i think does get tested when when markets get tougher i mean seeing your portfolio down 50 percent if you did allocate all to equities in a 50 percent sell-off that's a tough thing to bear mm-hmm. and we do see that often while people might say they're 100 percent um you know equities that they'll then pull money out of the market and just put it in cash often not Take advantage of fixed income, which might actually appreciate in a in in a, in a recession-led uh, sell-off. Um, so, look, but you know, even investor truly does have risk tolerance for 100% equities. Um, there's there's absolutely you know there's great solutions you can you know obviously build your own diversified portfolio. And I th- I think diversification, if you are going to be 100% allocated to equities, is really the key. I mean, you have to have some you know form of, of risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. Diversification is an excellent tool. Um, we have, for example, DHHF, which is our British Shares All Growth ETF, which is giving you exposure to a globally diversified portfolio of Australian and global equities and rebalance. And it comes at a you know very low management fee of uh, of zero point one nine percent. So that's a great way to get that all growth exposure and allow you to just continually invest part of your paycheck every month. So you know you, you can have a solution like that. But if you are you know somewhat uh, you know more risk averse than having 100% allocation, then the great thing about fixed rate bonds in particular is when equities tend to sell off because earnings start falling, which is typically associated with a recession, that's when we tend to see that, and I'll get a bit technical here, but forward expectations of cash rates come down and therefore bond yields come down. So bond yields are a reflection of a, two, of a few things, but you know broadly economic growth and um, expectations for cash rates. So when you have that recession and your equities fall, ideally that's the point in time when your bonds are rising in value. And when that happens, you get that offset. And obviously if you are then rebalancing your portfolio, you tend to sell the expensive thing and buy more of the cheap thing, which is great if you see a recovery in equities from that point. And that's the thing I think, um, and well said there, I think that's the thing with the opportunity set right now is people don't have to give up potentially like growth because they're getting an asset which is fixed income in this case they're getting an asset class that is paying respectable income it's probably priced more effectively than ever and that the idea of that happening is all of a sudden a reality again but when rates obviously like close to zero it's a bit of a different equation for folks yeah so so people that struggle to think about what goes into that side of a portfolio. I wanted to give you a bit of a hypothetical, strictly hypothetical. Everyone can go and speak to their financial advisor, um, of course, and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination of any fund or ETF that we might talk about. But um, 
I want you to imagine that an investor wanted to allocate, say, 30% of his or her portfolio to fixed income because okay. this is just a general rule that I seem to have come across is that in Australia, people tend to allocate on average slightly less. I could be wrong about this. This is more anecdotally on average slightly less because of all the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, how could they think about what would go into that 30%? So building blocks, and feel free to mention BHS products. Like it's, it's no sweat. Like people want to know what, is available yeah. in the market. So go for it. Like, tell us what would probably okay. be the building blocks in there? Yeah, okay. Um, maybe I'll talk about uh, fixed income in terms of, you know, broad types of fixed income funds that you can get. Sure. And, and probably, you know, we, we started off talking a bit about income. Now, um, you know, this obviously, as you sort of mentioned, is hypothetical and it all depends on your personal circumstances. But one of those personal circumstances might be, do you have a requirement for a certain amount of income? Like, do you need to earn, say, 4 or 5% out of your overall portfolio. So mm. I think the first thing that we tend to look at when we're building a portfolio is we look at the equity side of our portfolio because that's, you know, going to be the majority of your portfolio in the 70-30 split. And that's really going to drive the majority of your overall returns. It'll be more volatile than the fixed income portfolio or the defensive part of your portfolio. So that's the first thing is, you, you, you know, you're taking care of that equity side of things. So now you've got to think, well, if if I do indeed have a, a, a yield target or a cash flow um, requirement, then what can I put in that fixed income part of my portfolio to meet that? And, you know, where I have met that or where if I don't have that, what can I do to provide some sort of risk diversification for my equities? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few things there. And I mean, maybe on that income point, the great thing, and you, you mentioned this, is if I look across, for example, our beta shares fixed income funds, um, we, we've got, you know, AAA, which, which is cash, mm-hmm. um, cash held in bank accounts, and that's earning just more than the RBA cash rate. But our other fixed income funds are generally all earning, uh, have a, a yield to maturity as it's called or a all-in yield of, of greater than 5%. Um, so you're in a great starting point. But to break up and talk more generally about fixed income, we would categorise fixed income, which is a bit of a tricky sort of asset class because a lot of technical terms, as yeah. four, four sort of pillars of fixed income. The first being cash or, or cash-like uh, exposures. So I mentioned AAA, so it's cash in held. It's an ETF that holds cash in uh, seven or eight bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could think of your cash in your own personal bank account as the same. Yeah. Um, you know, a term deposit might be in that book or, or indeed a, a money market fund uh, might be in that book. So we've, in fact, we're launching tomorrow MMKT, mm-hmm. which is a money market fund. It's giving you very much a cash-like return, um, a little bit higher than cash with a, a little, tiny little bit more risk. But that's your sort of cash bucket. Yep. And then we sort of move up in a couple of different directions. The next pillar, as I'd call it, so that's cash. The next pillar is what I call credit income. These are funds that typically have very small or zero exposure to fixed rate bond movements, so changes in, in bond yields driven by changes in, in monetary policy, but harvest credit premia or indeed take on a degree of credit risk to give you a income return greater than cash. And this can be a really useful tool for building higher level of income in your portfolio, or indeed if you have a slightly higher risk tolerance. You know, so you, you know, you may not want to allocate everything to equities, but you might be comfortable having some fixed income, which is a slightly higher degree of of uh, you know of, of, of risk, if you like. And credit mm-hmm. risk is obviously, you know, it's um if you're like a a type of risk to, to corporates, a little bit different to equity risk, lower risk, but it's there and, and you can earn more. So, for example, if we look at our, our hybrids funds, we've got HBRD or 
um, uh, or Beehive that um, Beehive, I think, has a, a current all-in yield of uh, a little bit more than 7%, including franking credit. So you can see how you can generate additional income there, mm -hmm. um, indeed, from hybrids, or you might choose a fund which is a little bit higher in terms of uh, credit quality, but still earning more than cash. So uh, Coupon, which is our uh, senior uh, floating rate note um, bank ETF, um, earning more than cash and TD. So that's all within the credit income space, variable exposure. So you see quite good capital stability when government bonds move, um, but you're earning a little mm. bit more return. And then, so we've, we've moved on there to what we call traditional fixed rate bond funds. So these are funds that will have, um, you know, fixed coupons, uh, sorry, bonds with fixed coupons. Um, they might be government bonds. Uh, they might be corporate bonds. They might be state government bonds or issued by um, what are called supranational agencies that are backed by governments. Mm -hmm. um, and the role there is predominantly about getting exposure to the uh, what's called duration or getting exposure to fixed rate bonds. And the benefit of that can be, as I mentioned before, when equities earnings tends to fall and you see a recession, central banks will tend to pivot to cutting rates and then government bond yields fall and the capital value of a fixed rate bond fund, all else equal and depends exactly what securities are in there, should generally, you should mm -hmm. expect an offset there or a rise. That's a defensive tool to use in your portfolio. Um, and then the, the final pillar, which is a little bit more new to Australian investors, is, is inflation-linked securities. So, you know, there is another potential economic scenario where we see anemic growth, but we see um, a higher level of inflation. And so an inflation-linked uh, exposure may protect you from a longer, a higher level of structural long-term inflation. Um, so we have a fund called UTIP, which is uh, US uh, Treasury, so government bonds, which are mm -hmm. inflation linked. Um, so that's another thing that you can build into your portfolio. For most investors, if I'm thinking about that 70-30 um, split, uh, you know, most investors will probably choose a, you know, an allocation to either cash or credit income space. So it might be, say, for example, you know, AAA or, for example, coupon or, or another fund from another provider. And then they'll also, because they do have that 70% allocation to equities, have some of that traditional fixed rate bond exposure to provide you that that offset when things really get tough in equity markets. Yeah, and just want to confirm for folks that are listening, coupon is uh, Q-P-O-N, not uh, coupon as if it's spelt like you're looking at a bond, uh, but it's a play on that, so Q-P-O-N. I, yeah. I, should, I should spell it out, shouldn't yeah. I? <laughs> no, but it, there, all the information is available on the BetaShares website, but that's actually a really good, it's probably the best primer we've had on the show, Cam, for how those kind of like pillars fit into that one big bucket. Um, and it's a really good way of showing how you can move up the risk spectrum or, you know, even though they're government bonds and they're, they're fixed rates, so they do have variability. It shows people how you can kind of put them together. And I'd say in our community, what we've seen over this year in 2023 is a mix of more people slowly moving back towards the fixed income, um, towards that kind of fixed rate bond. Um, mm. Not entirely there yet, but just kind of stepping sideways into that. And I think that's a, that was a great um, great uh, summary that you gave us there. So there's two more things that I would like to talk about, two big pillars. One is, uh, I think it was you that recently penned an, a, a, an article on the BetaShares website. You can just head to BetaShares Insights uh, tab there in the menu. But um, I think you talked about like the outlook 
for dividends within the kind of broad remit of the ASX because I didn't know this, but you did this chart, which was really kind of cool. It looked kind of like a yield curve if any finance nerds like us out there. Um, but it actually showed the composition of dividend payments. And basically what I'm saying is it showed where the money actually comes from if you invest in like the A200 ETF and you just get a distribution, where that money actually comes from. And a lot of it comes from BHP, from Rio Tinto, from CBA, these types of companies. And some of those companies have actually cut their dividends. So I'm like, I guess my I guess my kind of just general thinking is like as a jumping off point is like, how do people think about that as a picture overall? Like how can you rely on that? Like what are the implications of that? Can you just talk through that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I, I think the charts. Well, I call it a waterfall chart, but it might actually be called something else. But I quite, I quite like that 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 chart. So, essentially, you, you know, you can look at the overall yield from the ASX two hundred based off its component parts. And you know, starting with the, with the largest contributor, which I believe was BHP in the chart. Mm-hmm. If you you build up the overall yield of of the ASX two hundred, you can see that a remarkably high share of the overall market yield comes from, um, I think it was the top 10 companies account for about 60% of the overall market yield. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, you know, I guess the danger there, which which I think I discussed in the in the insights piece, is that the concentration of that yield really does sit in um, in large cap materials companies, you know, you, you know the names, mm-hmm. um, in also Woodside has been a large contributor, and our big four banks. And so, you know, they are what you would describe as cyclical sectors. Um, we know that we've had a bit of a, um, you know, a bull run in, for example, in, in in iron ore price, and almost surprisingly, the iron ore price is still well above $100. Which, um, you know, we'll wait to see what happens with with Chinese demand and their property sector. Um, our, our banks have have you know somewhat recovered off the back of COVID, and so they're really underwriting the overall ASX 200 yield. Mm. And look, I mean, th- that's great. They've they've had a really strong history of being able to maintain dividends and the. The ASX 200 yield has generally been pretty well maintained, but there has been periods of time when, for example, banks' dividends have fallen at the same time that the miners' distribu- uh, dividends have actually increased. Um, and we saw that just subsequent to COVID where one is filling in the hole of the other. So we've been quite lucky. I guess the risk is if both were to see cuts to dividends, then that starts to erode the income you can get from the equity side of your portfolio. And I was just really making sure that I wanted to let people know about this sort of risk and, you know, think about this if they're, in fact, depending on equities for yield. Because, of course, fixed income, a fixed rate bond, there's a contractual right for income there, whereas uh, dividends are, uh, you know, subject to to the fortunes of the company and the dividend policies of, of management. Um, you know, with regard to, you know, the overall outlook, you know, there, you know, no question there is obviously risk around, um, the profits from 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 miners, depending on largely the iron ore price, but also um, in the case of Woodside on on energy prices. But the other one that that is sort of interesting is are the banks, and um, you know some potential changes coming to to uh, their requirements for how they they raise capital, which are a bit technical, but may result in them needing to issue a little bit more equity and thereby diluting shareholders and potentially eroding um, some of their earnings and therefore dividends and. You know, depending on the economic scenario, we might see them needing to have higher, you know, um, uh, you know, bad and doubtful debts, so higher provisions against their loan book. So, um, without wanting to sound like, um, you know, chicken little, there's risks there. You've got to think about that. Um, you know, 
I, I just think, you know, be mindful of, of this fact and, and you know, be grateful for the, the income that we've seen from our market, but but don't take it for granted. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the, you guys do have, most of you guys, I mean, beta shares have a range of products that take a different approach rather than just market beta. Yeah. Um, and we do get a lot of questions about them. So maybe if you just, in the interest of time, maybe you just want to pick one, yep. Cameron, and just tell us kind of what it does. And the literature yep. is available on the website, but tell us how it kind of deals with different ranges yeah. of outcomes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's really briefly, there's two general approaches if you want to generate additional income over and above the overall market income. One is to um, skew your portfolio to the more highly, you know, high dividend paying stocks. Um, that's a popular approach. We, um, we, you know, that does sometimes introduce quite a lot of sector concentration and, you know, you can be subject to dividend traps and the like. Um, we have a fund that that isn't exactly in that vein, but um, our QOZ or um, our Australian uh, uh, FTSE RAFI Australia 200 ETF invests in the 200 largest companies based off a number of criteria, including sales, um, you know, overall uh, uh, valuations, cash flows and, and dividends. And that gives you a slightly higher um, allocation or a slightly higher yield than the broader market. But mm. I think one, of the, one that is perhaps quite relevant um, in this discussion would be, would be YMAX. Y-M-A-X, I'll spell it out. Is, <laughs> and this is a, um, the, so the approach of YMAX is what's known as a covered call strategy. Um, in this, in this, what you do is you hold uh, the underlying shares and we do this, we passively hold the 200, the, the 20 largest stocks on the ASX. Mm-hmm. And then we, what we do is we write call options, um, which have a strike price slightly above the current market stock price and generate income from writing those call options. Now, what you give away there is you give away some potential upside if those shares appreciate in value greater than that strike price because you, you, there's a trade-off there. Mm. Um, but we're finding that a lot of investors are sort of seeing the you know overall index price index level hasn't really appreciated much in the last two years. And indeed, the performance of a fund like YMAX, because it's getting this additional income and giving away upside, which really, you know, we haven't seen any upside, has played quite well. Course, but yeah. I guess more importantly for an income-focused investor, the additional income over the last year, over and above the ASX, has been an additional 4% um, in income from this, you know, writing these call options. So hmm. um, that's a really good outcome because it's also a more consistent form of income versus dividends if dividends become threatened. So you're, what we've seen is that YMAX over time and obviously, you know, um, past performance isn't a guarantee of future performance, but over time we've seen that YMAX has been very consistent payer of income and a much higher payer of income than the broad market. Hmm. I didn't know it was that high. That's really interesting. Um, I want to, uh, I've got a couple, I've got t- two more tongue in cheek style questions to ask you at the end, yeah. which is the same ones I asked Tom a little while ago. But um, one of the things that's just, uh, I know you're thinking about because this is like what you think about in your role. Um, but as we approach 2024, people are thinking, well, what are the things that kind of matter? Like everyone you know, probably falls into the trap of trying to, you know, forecast markets and all that sort of stuff, which is probably outside of this is outside my skill set. Um, but I guess maybe if we could just give some people things to watch, like what you're watching um, yeah. as a high level. Like if, you, if we started the show by saying back in 2022, it was a bad year. If only we could have seen this coming kind of thing. And some people, you know, were aware of what was happening. It was fair to say. So, with at that time now in the following year, 
and we look ahead to 2024, what are the things that you are watching, generally speaking? Yeah, yeah. So one thing that um, that just looking at just this week really is, um, you know, what people sort of refer to as US exceptionalism um, and how that might play out in terms of US equity market. Um, if we look at economic data, you know, US GDP is absolutely surprised on the upside this year. Their mm. economy has just proven to be incredibly resilient. Their GDP is growing by just under 5%. Um, so they are, you know, absolutely an incredible, very dynamic economy. And, um, you know, a part of this is due to a very large amount of fiscal stimulus. Um, and that's obviously, you know, got risks around the amount of debt that needs to be issued by by Treasury. But, um I, you know, if we look at how that's playing through to 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 underline to equities, if we're an investor in U.S. equities, the um, projections for earnings growth in the U.S. next year are, in, in fact, incredibly strong, and the year after. Um, and you know, there's good reason to be confident, particularly sectors of the market that have tailwinds um, are going to meet those expectations. Now, when we talk about equity market valuations, we, we talk about price to earnings ratios typically. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, the way that someone talks about a price to earnings ratio is typically to look at the earnings over the next 12 months uh, relative to the current price. Because those earnings are growing more strongly, we're seeing that the price to earnings ratios are in fact falling. And the market doesn't need to, you know, move down for us to see that those price to earnings ratios could indeed fall further into the future. Because if we go forward another six months, those forward earnings expectations, if nothing else changes in them, will be higher still. And so, you know, when we've heard a lot of conversation about the US equity market being expensive, and it, look, it has been over the last year, the current price to earnings ratio, now the S&P is around about 17, which is a bit on the high side. But if we take out, um, you know, those very large tech stocks, um, if we can look at, for example, uh, the US S&P 500 equal weight, which is arguably a broader um, representation of US equities, the price earnings ratio there is about 14, which is kind of just mm. under long-term average. So, you know, a, a lot of the US equity market actually doesn't look overly expensive. We've got strong earnings momentum there and their their economy is going gangbusters. So that's certainly one thing that I think is, you know, very interesting and perhaps mm. we, we need to reset our expectations and there's been a lot of doom and gloom about, you know, the recession that um, if we look at underlying fundamentals, the picture perhaps looks a bit brighter than, mm. than what a lot of people were talking about six months ago. It gives people a lot of like that idea. And I think I remember every time I look at, because on the, if you go to, I don't plug the BetaShares website a fair bit, but if you actually go to the fact sheet for NDQ, it shows the, I think it's the next 12 months price earnings ratio or no, something yeah. like this. And it actually shows you every time I look at it and I'm like, it's not as high as I thought. Like, no, it's and then you, yeah. at the moment. Yeah. 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 And then you look at S and P 500, you're like, it's not as high as I thought. And yeah. because they perform so well, you just think it should be higher, but it's because they're growing so fast, they can support it. Uh, and that's that US exceptionalism. Actually, I've actually got to talk about this later today. And I'm, I've got that chart. I'm like, this is this is the thing. Right. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So I've got final questions for you. And these can be quite polarizing. Um, yep. But uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm led to believe you may even have a prop for people that are watching uh, the video version of this podcast, mate. But what do you think is the most overrated finance book? Okay. So, so full disclaimer, Owen, you told me you were going to ask this question in advance. Um, yep. So I had full warning. You might be able to see just off to the side there, there's a bookshelf. So we've got a whole bunch of finance books. 
Um, I, I will just disclaim that I typically don't read, um, you know, how-to finance books. Um, I feel like I get enough of that in my day job. But I, I am a you know avid reader of books about, um, you know, certain events in finance, historical events and things that have happened. So um, one of my favourite authors is Michael Lewis. But I will say, um, you know, I've read a lot of his books. So I've got here uh, The Big Short. I recommend that one. Even if you've seen the film, I recommend reading that. Um, this is a really good one. Uh, Roger Lowenstein, When Genius Failed, that's about uh, long-term capital management. Mm -hmm. But one that I'm actually kind of, I found really underwhelming and disappointing was Flash Boys, which is a Michael Lewis book. Um, Yeah, it just had a couple of interesting anecdotes, but I I thought it was just a bit weak as a story and my expectations for him as a writer are so high (laughs) that 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 wasn't wasn't my favourite. It's like when you meet a celebrity, maybe you just say, oh, that's it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.